Morning, Steve. Good morning. I'll keep. To, am I on? Yeah. Good. Hi. Uh, I, I'm. It's an exciting uh, morning for me to be speaking this morning because I'm actually not quite sure where I'm going with this morning's message. Uh, so that's quite fun. So I'm going to pray, <laughs> and you might want to say a hearty amen because. I felt God might be stirring something different to what I was supposed to be speaking about this morning. And then Lynn came and shared a dream that she had with me last night, which was in line with what I felt God might be saying. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, thank you that we come together to your word. And we ask, as we so often do, that you'd make our hearts to be good, receptive soil for whatever you want to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to speak what's on your heart for us out of all the riches that there are in your word. And together, may we respond to you, Lord God. May we respond to you, Holy Spirit, as you're here present amongst us. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's great to see that um, uh, hearing from Stephen Becky, the provision of food is obviously a key service for churches to make. Uh, The finding of marriage partners is often always... Yeah, it's often a good thing too. So if you're looking for either of those things, uh, there's no food today, I don't think, but look around. Um, The theme for this morning is uh, Open Heaven. uh, Changing Lives is our theme for the term as a whole. I'm not going to say much more about that, but our theme for this morning is this, choices that change lives. In this, uh, this season, when we're looking at the fact that Christ has opened a way to heaven for us, and that makes a difference in our lives. We want to look at the choices that we make that impact on how we respond to that, how our lives change. So if you have a Bible, would you please open it with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start here. Philippians chapter 3. First of all, we're going to read verses 4 to 11, and then press on a little bit more. The bit I'm unsure about is how much to keep on going through the chapter. We'll see how it goes. So here we are. Philippians 3, and uh, from verse 4, uh, it, Paul writes, I have reasons for confidence. Uh, that is, confidence in his own ability. So he's been talking about people who have confidence in the flesh. That is their own ability. And he writes in verse 4, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pause there. I've got an unusual sort of a picture, which hopefully will become clear in its significance in the next minute or two. You see, here was Paul quite rightly describing himself as strong and competent. He's able to write to the whole church in Philippi and say, however strong you think you are, I'm, I'm stronger. Whatever reason you might have for confidence in yourselves, it's like a pale comparison compared to me. Look at me. I have this history, these skills, this discipline. If anyone could sort themselves out, Paul says, I have the capacity. And yet, he's given up on that. And instead, he was so enthralled by Jesus that that was all that he came to care about, Jesus and what he's done for us. So this picture is just trying to convey something of seeing the whole of the rest of life as not, not worthy compared to finding the one, finding Jesus and all that he's done for us. And to understand why Paul feels that way, we just need to unpack this phrase of righteousness from God that comes through faith. A righteousness from God through faith. You see, righteousness is about being accepted. Righteousness, it's about being accepted as we are. And not grudgingly accepted, but accepted because we are truly acceptable. That is, to be righteous is to truly be good and really loved and embraced. And in particular, to be seen in that way and to be accepted by God. And Paul had understood full well that there is no better thing for a human being than to have that acceptance with God. Being human doesn't get any better than to be in that relationship with God. So Paul craved that righteousness, that relationship with God. How can such a righteousness be achieved? Well, the answer is we can't achieve it. What we have to offer God is far short of what would be needed And even our attempts to prove ourselves to God, should we choose to do that, are honestly despicable. And I have confidence in saying that uh, we're despicable, particularly from Song of Songs, where right towards the end of that love letter, chapter 8 and verse 7, it says this, If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be despised. It's not how love works. It's not how relationships work. We can't prove ourselves. And we don't have enough in any case to offer God to earn his love. That's why the Bible can describe us as stuck. We're stuck in exclusion from God. 
stuck in sin. And that is why God sent his son, who was free from any sin, Jesus Christ, pure, spotless, to bear our sins as he died on the cross so that we might die to sin and live with God in that relationship with him. That is righteousness from God. The best that human life can ever be made available to us because of what Jesus did, not because of our own achievements. That's righteousness from God, and it comes through faith. In the last, since last summer, I frequently quoted John Calvin, I think for the first time probably in my adult life that I've done that regularly. And there's this little phrase of his from his institutes, great big tomes that he wrote about doctrine. And his definition of faith is that we come with We come empty, but with mouths open. We come knowing that we have nothing to give, but we're ready to receive that good thing which God wants to give us. That's faith. And so we can receive this righteousness from God through faith, and that's simply it. God has done it for us in Christ, and we can receive it. We don't have to achieve it. We can receive it. Paul is just bowled over by that reality that all that he might have strained to do is instead replaced by the grace of God who just gives it. No wonder he sees Christ as his everything, his all in all. There was a woman who once came and anointed Jesus' feet and she was extravagant in her worship. She poured perfume, costly perfume over his feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and people were like, what is that? Why would you do that? It's raw. It's just too much emotion. (laughs) And Jesus says, look, those who've been forgiven much, they love much. And, uh, you know, if our love for God sometimes seems to burn dimly, One of the things that really helps us is to recognize just how much he's forgiven us. Sometimes we pull back from thinking of our sin and our being stuck. It's it's a bit gloomy. But, you know, when we recognize that and put it together with what Christ has done for us, it's the greatest cause for joy and celebration and delight. And we say, together with Paul, him, I want Christ. He's enough for me. He's all, the rest of it, I can live without anything except Christ. And if I can have him, that'll do. That's what Paul says. I'll have, his, I'll have the power of his resurrection, and I'll have the fellowship of his sufferings. I just want him. I wonder, do we? It's a call, and it's an opportunity for us to know Christ. Reading on a few verses, I'm going to read from verse 12 to just just into verse 15. Because Paul says something about perfection, and he says something about maturity that we're going to spend a little bit of time dwelling on. Paul goes on to say, not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, 
straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenwards, to which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Now, here's the thing. Um, There is actually seemingly a contradiction in this passage. And depending on what translation you're reading, you may or may not have seen it. Anyone's got the King James Version, uh, you'll have seen it. It doesn't come out in the NIV. But there is a seeming contradiction in this passage. If you were reading it in the King James Version, then you would read in verse 12 what we have in this New International Version, that Paul knew he'd not already been made perfect. But you'd read in verse 15, where the New International Version says, all of us who are mature, the King James says, as many as be perfect. So there's, there's a question. How does that, what's in Paul's mind? And what is God saying to us through this? Because in verse 12, he says, I'm not perfect. And then he speaks to the church in Philippi, and he says, as many as are perfect. What sense can we make of that? Well, we, there is actually good sense to be made of it. The word, there's a family of words in the Greek language based on, here we go, on this word, telos. Telos. There's a family of words. I'll explain this in just a moment. They all speak in differing ways of being complete, of being complete. So this word telos, or related word teleos, is what's used by uh, Jesus, recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, be perfect as God is perfect. There he teaches us that God himself, this thing of completeness, is an accurate way of describing God. God is complete. And regarding God, that means he doesn't need anything from us. He's not a bit glum and needing us to cheer him up. He's not lacking in power and needing our help. I mean, just he's complete. He knows all things. He sees all things. He has power over all things. And he is amazing. So God is this telos, complete. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with the phrase that Jesus says in John chapter 19 and verse 30 as he dies on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. And the word there is tetelestai in Greek. And it's the same thing, that little bit, it's the verb form of the same thing, saying it is finished. It is complete. I have done what needed to be done. Or as Hebrews puts it, again using a word from the same family that Christ, Hebrews 10 and verse 14, Jesus has made us perfect forever by his sacrifice. He's done it. That's why this whole thing of righteousness from God through faith works, because Jesus has completed the work that was given for him. We'll come to the future in a moment, sorry, the present in a moment, but for the future, this word is again used of history. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11 speaks of the fulfillment, that is, the completion of the ages. There will be an end to the age in which we live. It will be completed. So there's a family of words here that are used in these different ways. And the question then is, what does it mean for us living now in the present? 
And so there's another way in which this family of words is used that applies right now to us in our, the dynamic of our lives. And it's the idea of a living thing growing to maturity. Children becoming adults, plants fruiting and reaching their completeness, no longer infants, no longer adolescents, but adult, mature, complete in that sense. And so what Paul is holding together here is, on the one hand, he knows that there is a future perfection coming, which is when Christ returns at the end of the age, he will be changed, as will we all who are in Christ, in the twinkling of an eye to become like him. Sin and sickness gone. I look forward to that. In this life, whilst we're waiting, there's another kind of completion that Paul holds out for us. It's a completion of maturity. It is possible to be a mature believer in Christ. Which probably provokes the question, what does that look like? What is a mature believer in Christ? And thankfully, the New Testament gives us a bundle of answers to that. If you leaf through the pages of the New Testament, you'll find a number of places where it describes what maturity in Christ looks like. So we're going to have a look at a few of those. Quite a few things can be found in the book of James. So, for example, in James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. So here it speaks about maturity is seen in Christians who have a rough time of it, but who in that learn to persevere, who are resilient, who don't get hung up on disappointments, who don't wonder whether God still loves them because of some particular challenge that they've been through, but through, who through suffering have learned a perseverance in the faith, have a resilience. You know, these are the kinds of people that you can go to, and whether they're having a good day or a bad day, they'll encourage you with how much God loves you. They'll pray for you with confidence and faith because they've learned the perseverance of faith. They're not up and down with what the days held in the measure that they once were. There's a resilience of faith. That's what Christian maturity looks like. There's a few of these sorts of things. In James chapter 3, verse 2, it says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, then he is a perfect man. Wow. To never be at fault in what you say makes you perfect. There's a completeness of maturity in having gained control of your tongue. I wonder, I mean, James goes on to say this is a tricky thing. <laughs> Indeed. But it is possible for our tongues to be bridled in such a way that we consistently speak out words of love and encouragement and wisdom. It's possible for our tongues to be sufficiently under our control that people can expect to hear words from us that do them good. Even if those words are sometimes fairly stern or challenging, they're nonetheless 
under our control. We're not just blurting things out without being able to control ourselves. And going on from that, in the same verse, James says that someone that's like that is able to keep his whole body in check. Well, now there's a whole other thing, hey? Control over our bodies. Not to be controlled by our physical desires, but rather having a self-control that rules over those bodily desires. You know, um, as we grow up, we get... I mean, there, there are some bodily desires we have from the get-go. As soon as we're born, we want feeding. Uh, some of us may find that gaining control over that bodily desire remains a challenge uh, into adulthood. There's another kind of desire that kicks off in our adolescence, and I'm talking here about our sexuality. That kicks off in our adolescent years in an immature stage of life. And many of us will have experienced in our teenage years that desire that we have kind of running riot through us and being beyond our control leading us to do things of which perhaps we are ashamed, making all kinds of mistakes. And it's normal for it to take some time to mature in that. But there is a point of maturity in Christ where instead of being the slave of those desires, with God's help, we have become the master of those desires. And so... I wanted to just note this morning, it is not a mature Christian thing to be flirting, uh, to be experimenting sexually, to be self-pleasuring, to be finding comfort in relationships that are not marriage. These, These things are not mature Christian things to do. God still loves us. (laughs) Of course he does. But there's an invitation to something more. To press on towards maturity. And to find that we are no longer controlled by stuff that blurts out of our mouth. Or stuff that our bodies urge us to do. But instead, mature in Christ, having found control of those things, having found a kind of adult completeness. One of the challenges for us in that is in the culture in which we live, that kind of immaturity in which I feel like doing it and therefore it's okay, does define a large part of the culture in which we live. And many, many people cannot see beyond that that there could be a way of living other than doing what I feel like. I feel like doing it. I feel it strongly. And that actually is defining life choices for many people. The depth of feeling, the strength of the urge, is like the end of the story. For many people, but there's another way. There's another way in Christ, which is why I've taken a couple of minutes to speak about it. Christian maturity is an amazing thing, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Yeah, it is. It gets even better uh, 
when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, sell all you have and give your, uh, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, the question, the way that he actually phrases it is this, is if you want to be perfect, which I hope we're all picking up, can equally be translated, if you want to be mature, if you want to be mature as a believer, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. I'm sure that, that in the midst of all of that, that is why uh, tithing is such a helpful call and vision from God. Because whatever you make of that 10%, however you think about that, the truth is it's a bigger slice of our financial pie than we would naturally give away. So it's a prompt to us to go, how radical will we be? It's to ask the question, how radical will we be in our generosity? God calls us in that uh, thing that's from the law of Moses and that Jesus upholds when he discusses tithing specifically. He calls us to 10%. Well, that's, that's pretty radical to the, to the I suppose, the, the young believer. It's like, oh, that's, uh, what do I do with my money? Well, give, give 10% away as starters. Really? I appreciate that. I think it's the wisdom of God to call us to do something that goes beyond what we'd ever choose to do naturally. It does something in us of being radical. Because we would naturally think to give God a certain slice of whatever sort of financial pie we have. And what God wants to get into us is it's not about giving him just a slice. He, he not only owns the whole pie, God owns all the pies. <laughs> Which is a thing you can only use as, probably as a sermon illustration in Britain. I don't know how well pies travel around the world. So um, you've probably, many of you already heard me say, as we head towards May the 7th, we're going to have a special offering that day uh, as an opportunity to give towards our shared mortgage debt as a group of churches currently stands just over 1.8 million pounds, which is quite a large amount of money. Um, Again, I'm excited about that because it is a prompt for me, and Bev and I need to spend some time thinking and praying about what we'll do ourselves. It's a prompt towards thinking radically. Isn't it brilliant? Seriously, isn't it brilliant that we've got a debt that's so big that none of us could pay it off? Isn't that great? You're not looking entirely convinced. (laughs) Um, But the way it's going to work, because the way it's going to work is it's going to make, I hope, make us pray. That's the point, to make us pray. So, God, you you said to the rich young ruler that if he wanted to be mature, he should sell everything. So, God, just take... my, My hope is that together we'll take that day as a prompt... Probably not the only prompts that we'll ever get, but there are all kinds of other needs. But a prompt to say, God, what do you want to do? What do you want us to do? And the process that I'm in at the moment, Bev and I haven't spoken about this yet, but she won't be surprised that after this. I'm thinking, well, Lord, if you said to the rich young ruler, sell everything, I suppose our house is up for grabs. <laughs> well, it has to be, doesn't it? If he owns all the pies, he definitely owns our house. So just the, what, what the question becomes, God, what do you want? What do, do you want me to, what do you want us to do with all that you've given to us? And the point is that mature Christians go, yeah, I get that. 
I get that it's all God's, and God, what do you want to do? It, it's maybe a slightly difficult journey to sell the car, or, what, or whatever it is that God says to do, and it's not just about this offering. It's just I'm appreciating that as a prompt to think this way about the whole of the Christian life, because it's all God's. Mature Christians are not bothered by that. They're like, oh, thanks for the reminder. Thank you, because it is all God's, and I knew that, and I want to keep hold of that. Here's another thing that we see about Christian maturity, is it's fruitful. I'm taking this from the parable of the sower, where seeds are sown and some germinate. Not all get to germinate. Those that germinate grow to some differing extent. But the ones that really take off grow, and then they have... They have their 30, 60, 100-fold reproduction of life. So Christian maturity isn't just about becoming some kind of grand oak tree that is sterile. It's not about becoming impressive in ourselves, but about a multiplication of life. And then along with that, it's also about loving other people. In 1 John chapter 4, we read, it's where we read about love being made complete and perfect love driving out fear. And it's about God working his love into us so that our, in our maturity, we would be characterized by love. Um, perhaps I could put it this way, that um, a less mature Christian might be willing to clean the toilets because it, it needs doing and other people want it done, a more mature Christian wouldn't be bothered that that comes at the expense of their own personal development or any other kind of self-centered. I'm not doing it for myself in any sense if I'm doing it out of love. I'm just doing what others need. And then lastly, in Ephesians 4, uh, it talks about uh, the gifts of ministries that are available in the body of Christ, which will work, verse 13 until we all reach unity in the faith and become mature. And then it says, verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So there's also something here about, actually, mature Christians, in a sense, are a little bit boring. Because um, it's quite exciting to get caught up in the latest idea. Ooh, that's bright and shiny and sparkly and new, and ooh, I like that. A more mature Christian will go, mm, yeah, well, and look a bit dull, probably. Certainly to younger adults will look a bit, a bit dull, a bit not with it, a bit not ready to learn, perhaps. I don't know. That's, that's, but that goes along with being actually mature in Christ, not blown around here and there, not caught up on the latest fad, not always reading the latest blog post about the latest thing, but um, content sometimes to read Christian books that go back two, three hundred years instead, and indeed the scriptures. So here we are. This is the point I knew I needed to get to, and the point beyond which I'm not quite sure what to do. Um, Yeah. So here, okay, let's, let's take it this way. So here we see in just a few verses, Paul saying some very differing things. In the first chunk that I read, he says, look, I've got all of this strength of my own and it got me nowhere. 
And I came to see that the only thing that really matters is the righteousness from God through faith in Christ. And I know that I am utterly dependent on God in delivering that to me. I mean, I can receive it. I can't achieve it at all. And then a few verses later, he's going, I'm straining. I'm pressing on. I'm doing the stuff. And if you're mature, you'll be doing it too. Come on, people. And those are two differing things that we find again and again in the New Testament. You know, how does that work? Well, on the one hand, I can do nothing by myself. And on the other hand, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, God's power is at work. In the, see, the reason why it works for us to strain onwards is because Christ is calling us. It doesn't work just because I'm, I'm going to do something. It works because Christ is there calling us and saying, come on, Steve, come on, you can do it. And his voice makes all the difference. He called to Peter and Simon in their boats and said, come, follow me. And they got out of their boats and they left their living and they went after him. Jesus' voice calls to Lazarus in the grave, who's dead. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, who's dead, gets up and follows him. Such is the voice of Christ. When Peter's again in a boat and Jesus is walking on the water and Jesus says, come out to me, Peter goes, well, that's the call of Christ. I recognize the call of Christ. That means I can walk on water too. And there he goes, walking on water. I think one of the most fundamental truths about me is that I live on land. I've never really questioned that reality. But at the call of Christ, we can walk on water. So if that's the case, I'll give it a go. If Christ's calling me, I can do it. And so it's all about Christ, that I can do nothing without Christ's true fact. I can do all things, yeah, because Christ strengthens me, and Christ is calling me, and it's all about what Jesus does in us. And there are times when we say, oh, Lord, whew. I just, oh. There's a kind of praying. Yeah, well, I don't even know what to pray, Lord. I do know my weakness. And there are times for different kinds of praying when we say, ha-ha, God, you're calling me. Let's do it. I don't know what I'm doing exactly, but Lord, help me. Off we go. Let's have an adventure, God, as you call me forward. The picture that Lynn had, which um, has disturbed my preaching for this morning in a brilliant way, is that, see, it goes on in Philippians chapter 3 to talk, and Paul talks about, you know, imitate me, imitate others around you from whom you can learn. And it speaks about the benefit of our community and learning from one another. And I was going to speak about small groups, and I was going to speak about personal pastoring, and which is how we do uh, much of the discipleship. And that's all good stuff. But the picture that Lynn had um, just nudged me off that. Um, it's good. No, it's brilliant. The picture that she had was of three people all standing on one leg with an arm around each other holding each other up beautiful picture of community and togetherness and the strength that goes with that. And then in the 
that vision, um, a wind came and blew all the people over. <laughs> and instead, there were then people standing on, on two feet, stable in themselves. I thought, you know, that sounds like maturity to me. That sounds like the way God wants us to be. We can still put arms around each other. But when we do put arms around one another, and one of us is maybe a bit wobbly, a little bit, you know, still to mature in some area of the Christian life, feeling a bit fragile, we can put an arm around them. But, but the goal is, for, is to be stable in Christ. And I, I just wonder whether... There's some of us who, I'm sure there are, because I think it's what God's saying this morning, who God's saying, you can, you can be mature. You can be mature. You can put both feet down. And, and you can hold on to other people and please God, do so. You know, hold on to other people. But the, the rest of your Christian life does not need to be lived out wondering if you're going to fall over. Um, huh. So I'm going to skip this stuff. I, where are we? I'm not clicking anymore. I, I, maybe I don't know what to make of that. I'm not going to spiritualize that. Uh, Erica, if you could get us to the last slide, that'd be really helpful. Um, the questions that I brought to this morning were these two questions, and I think of these... And there's two questions that follow. There we go. These are the two questions. And I'll, I'll leave them both there. But I think actually God's speaking to us more this morning about the first of these two. So the first question is, how, have you given up on pursuing maturity in Christ? I wonder, when I went through those different things that the New Testament says about maturity in Christ, was there, a, was there at some point something in you that went, nah. Not, no, not that one. <laughs> For whatever reason. Or maybe, maybe, because it's the word of God and it does its work and it brings life. As we looked at some of those things, you went, oh, I have given up on that. But yes, <laughs> let's have more of that going forward. So yeah, either way around, do you recognize that you've given up on, in some way, on pursuing maturity in Christ? And is God speaking to you this morning about picking that back up and going, I can be resilient? Praise God. I'm going to pursue that. I can be radically generous. Praise God. I can be the master of my sexuality. Praise God. You see, the other question there is, with whom are you sharing that? Because I was going to read on through Philippians and say, God provides people for us. Um, but actually, let's stick with the first question. And do you know what we're doing next, Al? Uh, Fine. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Al, because he's in charge this morning. But my encouragement, to, okay, let me just finish what I'm saying here. Um, do you believe God's speaking to us this morning? And whenever he speaks, it's because he wants to lead us on. I hope that we hear, in something of what's been shared this morning, a call from Christ. He says, come on! Come on! And whether you feel like you're stuck in a boat, or stuck in a grave... 
the word of Christ is strong enough to call you out, to call you onwards. And all we need to do is to receive that and say yes to him, and then his power will be at work to change us radically.